Thank you, and once again, good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. We're beginning our sixth broadcast in the theological seminar dealing with the nature of God. In our last broadcast, we gave the scripture references and talked about the attributes of God that deal with His holiness, His love, and His faithfulness. As we remarked before, God is a balanced being. Many people today have a lopsided view of God. They overemphasize His love and forget that He is holy and just at the same time. The justice, holiness, and righteousness of God have never been popular subjects for the unsaved world, and we can certainly understand why. If man is what he is presented as being in the Word of God, he will by nature resent anything that criticizes his own holiness, his own righteousness, or his own goodness. And he will automatically, subconsciously resent any book that magnifies and brags about the righteousness and holiness of his Creator. What man wants is an automatic creation from eternity of matter through dust clouds and nebulas and energetic force fields, according to Einstein's theory of relativity, with bent back, uh, double infolded outside loops where things disappear into the fourth dimension, and where man can do pretty well as he cotton picking pleases. If you remember from Acts chapter 17, the thing that the most educated people in the world had against Paul was the fact he taught personal accountability and judgment. That's what they rejected. What they hated was when Paul got through with his message in Acts 17 to the Athenian scholars, the Greek scholars of that day and age, he ended his message with, God hath given assurance uh, to all men and it, that he hath raised the judge from the dead. In other words, Paul said the standard of righteousness is going to be a man who's going to be judged by God's righteousness. And when you begin to talk about that, these religious people begin to back out and whimper about their sacraments and their religion and their good works and their golden rule, and the assembled baloney they've tried to stuff into the garbage can to make it smell right. You have brand-new aluminum garbage cans that are made of stainless steel or aluminum, and they shine pretty in the sun. You have worn-out, beat-out oil drums that are rusty, stuffed full of garbage, and they both contain garbage. Now, that's the kind of thing that human nature resents. They don't like to be told their destiny is humus. Decomposition in dirt. But that is their end. And if you don't believe it, the undertaker will prove it to you sooner or later. And so when we talk about God being holy and God being just and God being righteous, we can expect an uproar from religious people who think that they are holy and they are just and they are righteous enough to merit God's mercy, which, of course, they are not. The Bible says, By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. If you could get to heaven by works, there wouldn't have been any purpose in Jesus Christ coming to die on the cross. And these people have prayed about the golden rule and the Ten Commandments in 1 Corinthians 13 and love, 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 love. They think, to quote Joseph Parker, that God is nothing but a great big kiss. He didn't kiss his son at Calvary. He turned him into sin and a curse and had him tortured to death in the place of sinners who couldn't merit their own salvation. Isaiah 53. That is, that's the divine record revealed by the author of life and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you smart Alex, who think you're smart because you've had 20 years of college might take up the argument with him. You don't impress me in the least. I'm not impressed simply because a man's had 10 years of college and 15 years of seminary and has written 35 books. I could be less impressed, son. Uh, the bigger the belfry, the more room for the bats. And like the folks they say down here to my part of the country, they say, if you ain't got no education, you just got to use your brains. 
You don't find it where in the Bible education equips any man to correct God or change the Word of God or make a liar out of God. So I'm not going to worry about it. That's your problem. But the long and short of it is, when you begin to talk about the holiness of God and the righteousness of God, then you upset deeply the self-righteous man who is trusting his own righteousness to save him, because it can't. Isaiah 65 says, All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So we covered some of these matters in our previous broadcast when we talked about the holiness of God. Now today, in finishing up our discussion of God as a balanced being, we are speaking of the uh, mercy of God and the justice of God. First of all, David says in Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. Deuteronomy 4.31 says, For the Lord thy God is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee. Now, a little bit later, he did put Israel aside. But notice the statement is, He will not forsake thee, in the sense of, if you are willing to go by what he said, then he'll keep his promise to you and will not forsake you and will show mercy. Notice, instead of inflicting pain and death every time as a punishment for sin, the Lord is merciful and spares the sinner and gives the sinner many blessings, health, comforts, and earthly joys, and these are given to both saved and lost. I don't know how many times God has given some of you people a good meal who didn't even bow your head at the table and thank God for the meal. Amen? I don't know how many of you God has gotten out of car wrecks and you still think you're smarter than Peter, James, and John, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I don't know how many people I'm talking to God has saved from a violent death, being thrown by a bucking horse, or caught in an avalanche, or an earthquake, or a forest fire, or a brush fire. I have no idea. I only know that God is merciful, and God spares the sinner over and over and over again. And yet, in all his sparing and his mercy, the Lord says, He that often being reproved, hardens his neck, shall suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy. Throughout all God's mercy is the constant warning that although God will put up with some things and be merciful to you, he won't put up with it forever. His mercy endures forever in the, in the sense that God keeps his word, and God will spare the saved sinner, but his mercy ceases in hell, unless you can call a lake of fire a mercy to people who have rejected Jesus Christ. I can't imagine anything more like hell than being in heaven with Jesus Christ when I didn't believe on him and thought he was just like Buddha. Wouldn't that be hell to have, your, have to cast your reward that you learn at the feet of a man that you didn't trust? How would you like to look into the eyes of a man who loved you enough to die for you, knowing that you never trusted him and never thanked him and never received him? Maybe in that sense, hell is a mercy. Matthew 5.45 says, God makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. God will give good crops to an atheist. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. One time an atheist sent a letter to a preacher, and he said, Preacher, he said, it's October. And he said, I plant on Sunday, and plow on Sunday, and harvest on Sunday. And he said, here it is October, and I've got the biggest bank account of any farmer anywhere in this county. Now, how do you account for that? And the preacher wrote him back and said, God doesn't settle accounts in October. That's how you account for that. You may have gotten away with it a hundred times, but you won't get away with it. the white throne judgment. You won't. The Bible says, Because the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil, 
It's set that way because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Now God is sovereign and can choose to whom he desires to show his mercy. Romans 9:15. The mercy of God can be shown to the multitudes. Exodus 20, verse 6 says, Showing mercy to thousands of them, then here is conditions, that love me and keep my commandments. In this day and age, God has chosen to show his mercy to people who come to Jesus Christ and trust him as their salvation. Now he may allow his mercy to extend generally to an unsaved man, but his mercy in eternity, eternal mercy, eternal heaven, eternal life, eternal joy, only comes to the man who does what God told him to do and what God told you to do, was quit trusting your own righteousness and trust his righteousness. Now, how great is the mercy of God? In Psalm 103, we read, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy. Condition toward them that fear him. Again, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Condition upon them that fear him. Notice the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And for some of you proud, self-righteous, stubborn, self-reliant, self-preserving, self-sustaining, selfish, egotistical, religious, bloated, puffed up, swelled up, puff-shirted people to go around talking about the mercy of God, is like Charles Manson talking about being a Bible-believing preacher. You're not kidding anybody but yourself. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And don't tell us you haven't uh, learned to fear God and consider going to hell and judgment. You haven't considered it. You've overlooked it and are dealing just for the positive aspects of God, God's mercy. You've got a perverted God. He's a crook. If your God only has one side to it, and that's love and mercy, you haven't got the God of the Bible. You haven't got a holy God. You've got a pervert. Why don't you trade him in for a used car and make you some money? People say you have to talk that way. That is the way to talk in dealing with fact. And if you're honest, there isn't any other way to put it. You say, I don't believe that, all right? Sit still a minute and reason. Will you sit still a minute? Quit, quit shifting around. Now listen. If your God only has love and mercy, I say he's a pervert. Do you know why? Because if all he has is love and mercy, he has to love fornication, adultery, perversion, deviation, bestiality, blackmail, embezzlement, Lying, killing, swearing, cheating, extortion. He has to love them with the same degree that he loves honesty, purity, decency, courage, and righteousness. Now there's that great big synthesized, integrated, passive relative God. There he is. He's a freak. That isn't the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That isn't the God that reveals himself in the Word of God. That's some other God. That's some other gospel. That has nothing to do with the revelation of God concerning himself. That is a man trying to fashion God after the image the man would like to create him in so that God won't interfere with his devilment. Again, Psalm 32:10: He that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Then we learn something. We learn that even an unsaved, Christ-rejecting, hell-bound sinner can experience the mercy of God in this life. God's mercy is one of his communicable attributes which he can communicate to man. 
However, when it comes to eternal mercy and the mercy of the Lord from everlasting to everlasting, this only occurs at Calvary in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God manifest in the flesh. And God is determined to show everlasting mercy upon the sinner that trusts his son and receives his son. And when the penitent sinner comes to Jesus for forgiveness, he claims not merit, but throws himself upon the mercy of the Lord. And when the unsaved man comes to God for salvation, he doesn't come for justice. He comes for mercy. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ was very clear about this in the New Testament, and I have something to say to you egotistical, soft-inflated, puff shirts that think you're somebody and think your little old sacraments, your little old religion, your little old pinky-dinky golden rule can get you to heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ has something to say to you, and I'm going to read it. Matthew 9, 12. Matthew 9, 12. But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. You ready? I'm going to light the firecracker, son, and send you off flying. I'm going to put the hot foot on you. You ready? Go ye. Get out and learn what this means. What what means? Quote, Matthew 9, 13. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Are you righteous? Then get out of the way and let a sinner get saved. The Lord has no business dealing with you. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 6, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Are you ungodly? Are you a sinner? You're not, then stay out of the way. The Lord has business to do, and you're in the way. The Bible says about you that you stand in the way of sinners. The Bible says about you that you don't enter the kingdom of God, and you stop those that are entering from going in. The Bible says about you that you stumble and cause those to stumble that are trying to find Christ. Stand aside, son. If you're not ungodly or a sinner, you have no business getting in the way of people trying to find Christ. Get off the track before you get run over in the traffic. When the sinner comes to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, he claims not merit, but throws himself upon the mercy of the Lord. He claims not his own righteousness, but God's righteousness, which is Jesus Christ. And he doesn't plead for a chance to live it, and doesn't point to his own life. He says with the ancient publican of yore, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or as another famous sinner said one time, who wrote nearly a quarter of the Old Testament, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. God is merciful. There isn't a case where a man ever came to God in fear, trusting God's righteousness and God's goodness, that God ever turned the man down. And the Lord Jesus Christ held out this open invitation to sinners, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And for 2,000 years the Lord Jesus Christ has been standing at the crossroads of eternity, inviting men to come to Him. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you shall find rest to your souls. He said to a certain group of self-righteous religious people, You will not come to me that you might have eternal life. And the last invitation is in the Bible before the prayer for the second coming of Christ, say, The Spirit invites men to come to Christ, the bride invites men to come to Christ, and whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. God is merciful. 
And finally, God is just. Moses said, A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. David said, The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The God of the universe is just and righteous and will mete out just judgment to each individual. Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18.25. He certainly will. If you want justice, son, you'll get it. If you want God to square accounts with you and give you what you have coming to you, I guarantee you he'll do it. My Bible says the day of judgment he'll reward every man according to his works. And he says, Thou art an inexcusable old man who serve thou art the judges, for in that thou judgest thou doest the same things. But after thine hardness and impenitent heart thou treasurest up wrath to thyself against the day of wrath and righteous judgment of God who shall render every man according to his works. Solomon said, God shall bring you into work with every secret thing, whether it be good or evil, God will bring you to judgment. With every work, every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil, God is just. He'll make no mistakes. Isaiah 45, 21, There is no God else beside me, the Lord says, a just God and Savior. God, being just, righteous, and holy, must act in a manner that is just, righteous, upright, and holy. And he will. If your sins deserve hell, the Lord knows it. If you pitting your puny self-righteousness against the rights of God is a crime worse than adultery or murder, I'll tell you somebody who knows it, if your pastor doesn't, God does. And if you're standing up and shaking your fist in the face of God Almighty, bragging about your golden rule, your Ten Commandments, and all the stuff that you stole from Israel, while you're trying to prove that your righteousness is as good as the rights of Jesus Christ, so you won't have to trust Him, if that merits a lake of fire... Don't worry, you'll make it. For Samuel 2, 3 says, The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. God's nature or character leads him to do that which is right at all times. And God is the just one to be the final judge of all things. Notice 1 Kings 8, 32, and in particular the last four verses in Revelation chapter 20. So we learn from our lesson on God as a balanced being and his attributes, that God is holy God is love, God is faithful, God is merciful, God is just, and our God, quote, is a consuming fire. Now, how can God be loving and demand holiness at the same time? How can he be both merciful and at the same time take care of the guilty sinner? Well, the answer can only be found in Calvary. It can't be found in any system of works in the face of this earth. And when we begin to talk about soteriology, the doctrines of salvation, We'll examine the famous pastors in James chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2, which have probably sent more religious people to hell than any of the two pastors in the Word of God. If a man wants to go to hell in a big way, quoting Scripture, the best place are James 2 and Acts chapter 2 and the Sermon on the Mount, because none of these deal with the blood atonement at Calvary. The answer to the problem can only be found at Calvary. At Golgotha, we find the expression both of the wrath of God against sin and the mercy of God toward the guilty sinner. So in speaking of God's attributes, we learn two things at Calvary. We learn, first of all, that God loves sinners and wants to save them. We learn that God desires to justify sinners, knowing they cannot justify themselves. We learn that God wants to demonstrate before sinners his absolute perfect righteousness so they can see what he requires. And we learn that God himself is willing to take man's suffering and pain, temptation and sorrow and sicknesses, in himself and bear the punishment of the guilty 
although he, God himself, is not guilty. And thus Calvary is where a cross is found. On one level we find man's will and where God's will crosses it. Where that cross is we find the righteousness of man obliterated by the righteousness of God. At that cross we find the mercy of God level and just and distributed evenly, and the wrath of God descending vertically on the helpless back of a crucified Savior. You cannot find salvation in this age apart from a completed, perfected blood atonement. You say you're very dogmatic about that, Brother Ruckman. I don't have to worry about it. I'm talking to bloody people. I never have to worry and qualify my language or prove anything or validate anything. My congregation is bloody. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Whether you call that trouble Bright's disease or Hodgkin's disease or leukemia or cancer of the blood or something else or articellarosis or cholesterol, you know, or hardening the arteries or blood clot or call it what you want, friend. When that blood ceases to function, you're dead. So when I talk about a blood atonement for sin, I'm talking to anybody I'm talking to. I don't have to be choosy. I don't care if you're a Roman Catholic priest or an Episcopal bishop or a Roman Catholic archbishop or a Jewish rabbi or a Buddhist or Hindu guru or Kelda. I don't have to worry about whether you're being a daily vacation Bible school or a Bible-believing Baptist preacher or a Methodist steward or a Presbyterian elder or a Baptist deacon. You're all the same boat. The Bible said the life of the flesh is in the blood. The Bible says there is no difference for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And when it comes to sin, there's no more difference between a doctor and a lawyer than there's between a junkie and a pimp and a prostitute and a bum. I know some of you people were deceived into thinking your education, your money made you respectable, don't like that, but who cares what you like anyway? I mean, after all, when facing the absolute truth of the Word of God, what does your opinion amount to? Less than nothing with a rim knocked off the cipher. The Bible says there is no difference. Now, if it says that, it means that. And the fact that you think you're different because of your education, your money, your religious standing is no concern of mine, and the Lord isn't going to regard it one way or another. The Bible said there is no respect of persons with God. Calvary is common ground, leveling ground, which levels all men to sinners, and even includes God's Son as a sinner. You read in your Bible that Jesus Christ was numbered with the transgressors. And when he came to the ministry of John the Baptist, where sinners were being immersed, and John tried to stop him, <clears throat> Jesus said, Suffer it to be so for now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. He took his place as a sinner in his baptism. He took his place as a sinner on Calvary. And <clears throat> God bless your soul, doctor, reverend, rabbi, father, lawyer, or whatever you call yourself, you will take your place there, or eternity, you'll see the other side of God's face, the side you didn't believe was there. God is love, but not that kind of sentimental love that gushes over sin. The love of God is holy and just. God hates sin, and God will not tolerate it, and if you don't believe it, just keep on like you're going, you'll find out. To understand God is being character and nature, we must study Calvary. We must study the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must spend time with Psalm 22. If you're a Jew, that's in your Orthodox Old Testament. Spend time with Isaiah 53. If you're a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, a Hasidim, an Orthodox Jew, you'll find that in your Old Testament. 
Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. If you don't believe the New Testament, then read Exodus chapter 12, Psalm 110, Psalm 22, Genesis 12, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 10, 11, and 12. If you're a Catholic or a Protestant and you believe the New Testament, spend some time in Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Spend some time in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Spend some time in Colossians 2, 3, and 4. And above all, above all, spend some time in your New Testament in the Gospel of John. Calvary satisfies the holiness and justice of God by fulfilling all the requirements of the law and permits a sinner to enter heaven legally. Or as Paul says in Acts chapter 13, verse 38 and 39, Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Again, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, be made a curse for us, for it is written, Curse everyone that hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ's death on Calvary's cross not only justifies you from the ceremonial laws given to the Jews, but the moral law of the Ten Commandments, which is perfectly clear from Romans chapter 13 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, if you're one of these foolish people who think that you're saved partly by faith and works because you spend your time in James instead of Romans, if you're one of these deceived, self-righteous sinners who is always going to the Judaistic portion of the New Testament to prove salvation by works where you've got no business being, you should spend some time in Romans 13 and 2 Corinthians 3 and learn the Ten Commandments, all ten, not just nine of them, were taken care of when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And the Christian is no longer under the law, he's under grace. You say, well, what then shall we never mind all the hot air? We begin to talk about homotiology and soteriology. We'll cover what happens to a man who's saved by grace and his relationship to moral righteousness. Right now, we're not talking about that. We begin to talk about salvation by grace through faith. We always have these self-righteous, scripture-quoting Christians coming in and trying to damn the sinner before he can find Christ by telling him that if he does get saved, he'll have to do this and this and this and this and this. And these men are blind guides that lead the blind, and they both fall into a ditch. Now, if you want to know what happens to a Christian after he's saved and doesn't live right, We'll get that into our studies much later when we begin to talk about sanctification. If you want to know what happens to a saved child of God who doesn't live right, the Bible is very clear on it. But it certainly is never connected with his redemption or his salvation. His redemption and salvation are completed at Calvary when Christ said, It is finished. And when Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross, he satisfied the holy demands of a holy God for a just and righteous life and a perfect blood atonement, dying in the stead of the sinner. May God help you to see that today as we go off the air. May God reveal to you that Christ died the just for the unjust, that he might bring you to God. This completes our lessons dealing with God the Father uh, alone by himself, and our next lesson will deal with the Trinity, the Godhead. This completes our lessons on God's communicable and incommunicable attributes. The next time we meet, we'll talk further about theology in the study of the Trinity. Until then, may the Lord bless you, and good day.